Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Sestouli. A little over a week ago now, I talked with our full-time employee, Dave Cameron, uh, about the various divisional series. As of Friday afternoon, two of those series have come to conclusions, one of them more dramatic than the other. And Friday evening, we'll see two more of those series, both in the National League, come to their own respective conclusions. And what follows, uh, Dave and I do some post-mortems on the American League Divisional Series, some brief but entirely charming previews of Friday night's games, look ahead to what the Championship Series will offer us, some considerations on the Chicago White Sox new manager, Robin Ventura, and some idle thoughts on the Arizona Fall League. The attentive listener will also note that today's episode is punctuated by no little number of insults. That's how you know it's Fangraphs Audio, present episode of which begins right now. Fangraphs Audio, I'm Carson Sestouli. Uh, last week, uh, Dave Cameron and I conversed uh, with regard to, or on the topic of, uh, the various ALDS and NLDS series that were happening, just the DS, the LDS series, series is. Uh, two of those uh, have ended. Um, one of them, um, as we speak, one of them ended last night as the Tigers held on at Yankee Stadium to beat the, the New York Yankees. Uh, one of them was uh, perhaps uh, slightly less dramatic, um, and that was the uh, the Rays and Rangers series. And, of course, uh, uh, the thing that will be prompting me to get this particular episode of the podcast up quickly uh, is that, in fact, we'll be looking at two games, two deciding games that happened uh, this afternoon. Cameron, are you there? First of all, I should probably establish that. Yes, I'm here. I was listening to your rambling. Oh, much appreciated. Yeah, not awkward at all that you said that. Now, you're outside somewhere. Is that what's happening? Uh, I'm in the parking lot of a Whole Foods. Okay. Yeah. Is that the bad part of Winston-Salem? Right. You know, Whole Foods is notorious for building in the ghetto. Yeah. Uh, but no, this is actually in the uh, uppity doctory side of Winston-Salem. You just have a whole neighborhood for doctors? Well, I guess you have that giant hospital, right? Yeah, so like Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center uh, has a community around it where a lot of the residents live and walk to work. and uh, So there's basically a whole neighborhood of doctors right around the hospital. Oh wow! Um, is it is it a nice? Because uh, I don't I don't really understand much about Winston Salem. Is it is it like a? You say they walk to work. Is it like a? I mean, is it very neighborhoody? So there, it's definitely split into diverse neighborhoods. Uh, well, diverse might not be the right word for the neighborhoods. There are different kinds of neighborhoods. Uh, most of them not all that diverse, actually. Um, but so there is a neighborhood called Ardmore around the hospital. That's most of the homes are built in the twenties and thirties, and every doctor who moves here is like, oh, that's adorable. I'll buy one. And so there's a, a significant medical presence in that neighborhood. And then not too terribly far away is the old money white people neighborhood. So people whose, you know, great-great-grandfathers were slave traders and they just kept passing money down. They all live together. And, uh, you know, so there's definitely uh, neighborhoods around Winston-Salem that have their own unique feel. Okay. And do they each have, like, a, a main street or something to that effect? Uh, sort of. I mean, there's uh, a couple streets that kind of run through multiple neighborhoods. But uh, you definitely know when you're in one neighborhood or the other. Do you need a car to live in Winston-Salem? Uh, yeah. I, I think if you didn't have a car, you would be just staying at home all the time. The, the city's public transportation is about as good as one Pierre is hitting home runs. Oh, okay. Well, um, there you go. Uh, well, so listen. Uh, so we've established the fact that we're going to be addressing playoffs. Do you care, Dave Cameron, to talk about the dead series or the living series? 
Uh, well, let's begin with the dead. I think, you know, they're just going to get more rotten as we go. So. That's right. Post, uh, post-mortems on, well, I guess we'll start with the one that was probably the least dramatic, uh, the Rays and Rangers. Rays actually, uh, well, certainly after the first game with Matt Moore, uh, looked interesting, but too much Mike Napoli and Adrian Beltre for them, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the reality is the Rangers have a really deep, balanced lineup where they can uh, provide a lot of guys. I mean, Ian Kemsler's a good hitter. Obviously, Michael Young gets a lot of talk, and Josh Hamilton. But uh, Beltre and Napoli can hit. Elvis Andrews isn't a bad hitter for a shortstop. They've got some bats in that lineup, and their pitching staff, I think, is a bit underrated. And we saw Matt Harrison sitting at 93-94. I mean, it's a playoff start, so he's a little amped up. But he was throwing, uh, you know, a nasty changeup with good velocity. Um, Derek Holland pitched well. Alexi Gondo added to that bullpen that was already deep and strong. The Rangers are really tough, and I think you know the Rays are a good team, but the Rangers were just the better team, and that showed in the four-game series. Yeah, with regard to the offense, I mean, I, I I probably didn't realize how good they were during during the course of the season, but I know one thing we talked about was uh, in leading up to the playoffs, one strength is the ability to exploit matchups, and they're pretty solid both from the left and right sides. Is that right? Yeah, I think the the nice thing about the Rangers is that, you know, it's not like you can bring in a left-handed reliever and shut down the middle of their order, you know, start a sinker ball guy who throws from the right side and give them fits. I mean, you know, the, they've got a nice balance of left-handed power and right-handed power. Um, they, they've got guys who can beat you from both sides, and that's true in the bullpen as well. I mean, you know, I think uh, the Rangers probably have the ability to match up better than anybody else in baseball when you get into a, you know, sixth, seventh inning situation where, you know, if a good hitter's coming up, they can go to Mike Gonzalez. They can go to Darren Oliver, they can go to Koji O'Hara, they can go to Mike Adams, they can go to Neftali Salees, and now they can go to Alexi Ogando. I mean, the Rangers definitely have the ability to win the matchups more often than not. Right. Yeah, they look good. And, and do you think, uh, I mean, for for the Rays, did you did you think that they were, I mean, obviously in a five-game series, you know, it's a, it, c- it can be something close to a toss-up, but, uh, I mean, did you think that they did they act very Raysy, or or was there something about them that surprised you during the course of that? playoff series? Uh, I, mean, I would say I was surprised by David Price's struggles. I mean, you know, I think David Price is probably one of the ten best pitchers in baseball at this point, and uh, I would have expected more from him than what they got, and so for the, you know, I think for the Rays to win, they needed David Price to be David Price, not not what he was in that series. Right, how are the Rays going to handle Matt Moore? Are they going to, I mean, is he going to start the season in the rotation, do you think? Well, I think their plan was probably to start him in AAA next year so they could manipulate service time and, you know, keep him longer and cheaper. Uh, that's going to be really hard to do after what he did in the playoffs. I don't think that they're going to have any credibility if they uh, try and put him in AAA next year and say he needs more seasoning. That will be a pretty transparent financial decision, uh, and the union could potentially have something to say about that, although that would be a tough grievance to win. But uh, my guess is that more might have forced their hand to the point where now they're going to have to say, hey, you know what, this guy might be one of the 20 or 30 best pitchers in baseball right now. He should probably be starting for us next spring. Yeah, it, it's actually curious. I mean, obviously the, the Rays... Uh, won the AL East, uh, or not won the AL East, but they won the wild card spot in dramatic fashion. I wonder if it would have been, uh, I mean, I, because of the Red Sox collapse, I suppose it would have been uh, just as dramatic. But I wonder if it would have had to have come to that um, had Desmond Jennings played, you know, April in the first half of May. Yeah, you know, I, I think people like to talk about, you know, what would have happened if Jennings was called up. I do think that there's a little bit of a falsity to that because so in April, Sam Fold was amazing, and now Sam Fold is not uh, 
amazing all the time, but it's not like Desmond Jennings was going to do any better than Sam Fold did the first month of the season. And then I think it's a little disingenuous to say, like, okay, well, come May, when Sam Fold has been a two-win player in the first month of the season, the Rays should have benched Sam Fold and called up Desmond Jennings, who, to be honest, hadn't been that good the year before in AAA and, you know, still needed some work. So uh, I don't think any major league organization would have made the call to bring up Jennings and bench Fold, given how well Fold played the first month of the season. Maybe you could make an argument that they should have called him up in June or, you know, early July, maybe a month or so earlier than he did. Um, but I, again, I, I don't think that James, you could have anticipated him playing as well as he did down the stretch. I mean, he was better in the majors than he was in the minors, and that doesn't happen very often. No, it doesn't, it doesn't happen very often. Uh, because usually, uh, the players in the minors aren't as good. Have you noticed that? Yes, I have noticed that. Although, uh, sometimes, you know, some teams have minor league systems that are better than other teams' major league systems. So, if, like, if you watch the Houston Astros play, uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> that's not always true. <laughs> Uh, okay, mo- moving over to the uh, the other series that's over, uh, and, and, um, and it, it, this in fact will decide, um, uh, in fact did decide uh, who the Rangers will be playing. Uh, MVP of uh, AL Jose Valverde, and uh, or uh, likely MVP I should say. It's not it's not a shoe in. Uh, uh, Single handedly beat the New York Yankees. Is that the story? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think from the national perspective, the story is probably the Yankees lose in the first round. Uh, anytime you have a $200 million payroll, you're probably expected to do a little better than that. And they're the Yankees, so they feel like they have a birthright to win everything they ever compete at. Um, but I think, you know, realistically, what we saw were two really evenly matched teams, and we saw the um, small margin of error in a five-game series. I mean, the Yankees outscored the Tigers 28-17, and they lost. <laughs> so it's not like the Tigers blew their doors off, or the Yankees played horrible. Uh, you know, if one of five guys, or one of six guys, really, would have come through with a base hit in a high-leverage situation last night, the Yankees are the winners of the series. But because the uh, Tigers were able to strand a bunch of runners, they're advancing. And I think, you know, if, if anything, this uh, first round shows that it was two good teams who played really close, and it could have gone either way. Right, yeah. And, and just like you mentioned, uh, you know, with, uh, with Sam Fold at the beginning of the season sort of, you know, playing out of his head, uh, we have we have the case of, uh, the mysterious case of Don Kelly, who is not uh, maybe a real major leaguer, you know, sort of a, a fifth infielder, fourth outfielder type, but uh, uh, he had himself a pretty decent ALDS, and uh, I, I hit a home run too. Is this is this like one of those things that a manager maybe makes the wrong decision and it just turns out well anyway? You know, I think Don Kelly might actually be getting underrated in some circles. I think a lot of people just look at his line and say, hey, look, he hit 250, 280, 320 or something, and, you know, he's not a spectacular defensive player. This guy is terrible. But if you look at his underlying skill sets, his career Babbitt is like 255 or something. I mean, that's almost clearly not uh, his actual talent level. Uh, he doesn't walk that much, but he makes a lot of contact. His career striker rate's like 11%, and he's got a little bit of power. I think his ice is like 110, 120 or something. That's not a great player, but a guy who doesn't strike out and can occasionally hit some doubles, I mean, that's a useful player. And so for him to hit a home run off of Von Nova in the smallest ballpark in the world is uh, not, maybe not the world's largest surprise. Right. Well, uh, how about then an- another uh, player who's playing unlike himself in Delman Young, who had to leave actually game five with with an oblique strain and, and may or may not be available for the ALCS. Yeah, I mean, I think with Young, you know, uh, his problem has always been uh, where's the power? Because his skill set doesn't work if he's not hitting the ball over the fence. And so in Tampa Bay, you know, he hit 15 to 20 home runs a year, but because he never walked and he was terrible at defense, he was a low replacement level player. He went to Minnesota and, you know, kind of added a little bit of power, but maybe still not as much as you would have thought 
had a little bit of a breakout year last year, but it still wasn't a, you know, a fantastic year by any chance. And then this year he regressed and his power went away again. Uh, and then he got traded to Detroit and has come back. So that's the thing with Young is when he's hitting the ball far, he's a good player. And when he's not, he doesn't do anything else. So uh, that's where his value is going to come from. So far in the postseason, he's hit some balls over the wall. Uh, I don't think I'm going to continue to expect him to lead the, the majors in home runs in the postseason. But, you know, I think uh, that's Delman Young's skill. If he can get a fastball, he can turn on it. He's definitely going to swing at it. Uh, he can hit it over the fence. He can help the Tigers potentially advance in the ALCS. Uh, if he's not hitting the ball over the wall, then he's pretty useless. Right, and Ryan Rayburn is not a—he's uh, not really a step down from Young going forward, is he? No, and I, I actually uh, I turned in a piece for ESPN today about the Tigers' potential lineup in the ALCS. I think Rayburn should be starting over Ordonez in right field. Uh, I know that Maglio Ordonez is a name value guy, but he's not much of a defender anymore. His power's mostly gone. Rayburn. I think of a better hitter than Ordonez at this point. Anybody's a better fielder than Ordonez. So I'm a little perplexed as to why Rayburn's not starting in right field. Right. And then in Verlander, because of, uh, you know, you wrote the post too with regard to Justin Verlander and uh, Jim uh, Jim Leland's comments that Verlander wouldn't even be available for Game 5. Uh, it turned out they, I mean, I guess you can make the case that they, they certainly could have utilized him up a run uh, for the last couple innings. Um, but they got through it with a combination of um, Scherzer and, and Valverde and uh, Joaquin Benoit. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so they're going to have Verlander for what? Two or th- or three starts? How does it end up eventually? Two starts. They're not. They said they won't use Verlander on short rest, and I think Leland made that very obvious in Game Five. He just will not deviate from Verlander's normal usage patterns. They're willing to use him a lot in the games that he pitches, but they're not going to use him on short rest. So. Verlander will go games one and five, um, and then you know probably wouldn't be available to pitch out of the bullpen in game seven because it would be the same situation we just saw in the ALDS. Is that one of those things that, you know, as outsiders we only have so much information, uh, you know, because you made the point that uh, Verlander, what is like two of the five, you know, pitchiest seasons in the last ten years or so. Yeah, you know, I think it's one of those things that we can't. I'm not going to say Jim Leland's making the wrong case because he knows Justin Verlander a lot better than he does. I, I don't have information about how long he takes to warm up, or uh, you know, I think there are things that Jim Leland could know that could justify the decision. I just think it's a little bit weird that the Tigers are willing to use Justin Verlander so heavily uh, and days that he does pitch. I mean, he threw almost 4,000 pitches this year, and then it gets to the playoffs and it's do or die, and all of a sudden it's like, no, we really got to be careful with this guy. I mean, there's no real medical evidence that suggests pitching on three days rest is worse for you than two days, you know, four days rest. Maybe you'll perform a little bit worse, but it's not necessarily an injury risk. And a little bit worse if Justin Merlander is still way better than most people on the Tiger staff. Right, and, and I guess the the peculiar thing, as you as you mentioned, is is the fact that they use him so much uh, in terms of you know per start. And it's curious, maybe what you'd be looking for, you know, uh, and this is sort of as as uh, I guess analysts. We're always going to have it at some level an outside perspective on the matter, but is just Leland uh, or someone within the organization at least to respond to that fact? It's not a question of overuse; it's a question of of the I guess not the quantity of the use, but the quality. Is that really the point? I, I'm not even really sure. I mean, Verlander has said straight up he felt good, he wanted to pitch, he was he wanted to be available, and Leland told him no. So this wasn't necessarily something that was coming from Verlander or coming from concerns about his health. I mean, Verlander's never really had any health concerns. Uh, he's had a, carried a really heavy workload, and he throws 100 miles an hour in the eighth inning, you know, on his 115th pitch. This is not a guy who we have wearing questions about how well he wears down. 
Um, so it's really tough to say whether it's a uh, you know Dave Dombrowski is protecting his eighty million dollar investment and is told Leland not to use him on short rest because he doesn't want him to blow out his arm, or if there's just uh, maybe a I would say an overreaction to uh, potential disappointments in previous starters who pitched on three days rest. I mean obviously we saw Chris Carpenter didn't do that well on three days rest, Matt Granke didn't do that well on three days rest. So there is a perception out there that I think that guys are significantly worse than they are on full rest. But the evidence states that it's like a three to five percent decrease in performance. It's really not that large, and so I don't know if, if uh, Leland is just overestimating how much worse Verlander would be, or if it's an edict from the upstairs to just protect their golden arm. And so, with regard to the uh, the, the pending ALCS, um, I mean, do you sort of uh, do you have an angle on that or a view? Uh, I mean, I took the Rangers to beat the Tigers in the ALCS before the season or before the playoffs started, so I, I think I'll stick with my original prediction. I do think the Rangers are a better team. Uh, you know, obviously they don't have Verlander, but CJ Wilson is, uh, not chopped liver. And I think the rest of their rotation matches up really well. Their bullpen is far superior. I mean, I think if this becomes a battle of the bullpen, the Rangers win easily. Um, and you know, I think the Rangers have a better offense and probably a little bit better defense. And I don't see one area besides Justin Verlander where the Tigers have a really huge advantage. And if they're not willing to use Verlander in games one, four, and seven, uh, then maybe his advantage isn't as large as people might think. Now, you say uh, that you think C.J. Wilson isn't chopped liver. Do you think it would be strange if a team, uh, if, for example, Ron Washington the Rangers, decided to just uh, have chopped liver pitch a game? Well, I mean, you know, there are people out there who name their kids weird things. So if their last name was Liver and they named their son Chopped and he threw 98 miles an hour, um, you know, uh, there's an, a guy named Al Albuquerque pitching in the playoffs. Yes, I, I there would is. Say that the, no, no names are off limits. Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay, so let's move. Uh, let's move National League word, uh, where we have um, two deciding games this evening, in fact. And the first one uh, is a series that's uh, become uh, become very interesting after the Brewers uh, beat the Diamondbacks. Uh, the first two games at uh, Miller Park, uh, the Diamondbacks um, in a less than capacity. Uh, uh, Chase Field, um, at least for one of the games, uh, beat the Brewers twice in a row and on the strength of a couple of grand slams, uh, one for each game. And now uh, tonight we have uh, uh, Zach Greinke versus no, no, we sorry, we have uh, Giovanni Gallardo, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, uh, Gallardo versus uh, versus Ian Kennedy. Is that about right? Correct. Uh, now Gallardo is uh, obviously very impressive in his first start. Uh, Maybe on a, like a per inning basis or per plate appearance basis, not as dominant as Greinke, but um, they they seem to have the pitching match uh, um, the the advantage in the pitching matchup and in the offensive matchup. I guess what would have to happen for the Diamondbacks to win the game? Yeah, I think it's one of those things where maybe the perception of the offenses I would say are a little bit skewed. I, I believe uh, not a hundred percent sure, but I think the Diamondbacks actually outscored the Brewers this year. If not, it's really close. <laughs> And uh, it's not like, you know, Milwaukee has Prince Fielder and R- Ryan Braun and Ricky Weeks, but Weeks is uh, gimpy and maybe a little less than what he normally is. And the rest of that lineup isn't as deep as people might think. So uh, Arizona, I don't think their offense is significantly worse than Milwaukee's, and I think their defense is better. Um, so if Ian Kennedy can, you know, pitch well enough to where his defense can make plays for him and they can um, get, him, get him some outs, I mean, Kennedy's not going to be a dominant guy like Gallardo is in terms of the strikeouts. Um, but I think overall, Kennedy is a pretty quality pitcher. And uh, I would say this is about as close to a coin flip as you're going to get. I mean, you have two teams throwing essentially their best starter or one of their best starters, and they're evenly matched up around the field. 
Uh, I think the bullpens, you know, there's not a huge difference between them. I, I would say uh, maybe give the Brewers a small edge for home field advantage, but, you know, no more than like 55-45 one way or another. Uh, do you agree that it would be awesomer if the Brewers won? Well, I don't live in Wisconsin, so... Uh, no, but I, I think that, I think that uh, and, and I certainly felt this way before I moved to Wisconsin, that I think the Brewers are one of the most likable teams uh, for, for a neutral supporter. That's probably true. I think there are some guys on that team who are definitely fun to watch. Um, and, you know, I mean, Milwaukee doesn't have the same uh, annoying fan bases from other franchises. But I, I like Arizona, too. I mean, I, to me, Arizona's a fun story. Uh, you know, I, I know that uh, the, some scout on ESPN not too long ago referred to them as Justin Upton and seven utility players. And I love the fact that, like, no one in baseball can figure out how this team won 95 games. And they're actually pretty good. Like, I think the Diamondbacks are pretty underrated at this point. So uh, I would be fine with either team advancing. Maybe I have a slight preference for Milwaukee because I predicted they would win the series and I like to be right. But yeah. other than that, you know, I, I'm fine either way. You do like to be right. I've noticed that. That is the uh, truth about me. Yeah. Yes, that's those are the facts. Uh, those are the facts. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, and, and I will just, uh, state, uh, from my own point of view that I, I, I would definitely care, uh, to see Milwaukee win. Not just, uh, I would, the, here's my argument is Arizona's a newer team, A. Uh, B, they've already won the World Series. And C, uh, Milwaukee is such a good sports town anyways, and, uh, Bob Euchre, um, who's probably the best, uh, um, broadcaster in baseball, um, hasn't gotten a chance to see his team win before. Um, I'm sorry, did Ben Scully die? Uh, no, I mean, we can have that argument if you want. I, I, I think Euchre is superior. Okay, well, I think you're crazy. No, I know you do, but no, Scully, so Scully is classic, and I agree that he's, I agree that he's excellent. I, I don't debate that. And he's probably better in terms of actually calling action. Um, but in terms of, but never once have I heard Vince Scully tell a story about, um, Putting Miller Lite in his cornflakes. <laughs> okay, well, I will. I, I that's a mental image I can't get rid of. Is Vin Scully putting Miller Lite in his cornflakes? Yeah, I don't uh, think you would do that. No, I. I mean, yeah. like Vin Scully is like would be like the best grandfather ever. But Bob Euchre is like a guy that would be fun Super to. Crazy uncle. Yeah, right. The ridiculous uncle. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it'd be fun. And plus, the Dodgers aren't in it, so Euchre is certainly the best commentator left in the playoffs. Um, uh, there is another series, right? Uh, the Cardinals uh, and the Phillies have gone to five games. Uh, that's on at about 8:30 Eastern Friday night. Roy Halladay is really good at pitching. Uh, Chris Carpenter is also really good, not as good. Um, and uh, let's see, the, uh, are the Cardinals playing with or without Matt Holliday? I, I think he played Game Four. Yeah, no, I think he's uh, expected to be in the lineup, but uh, with those uh, lingering. Injury issues, you can never really tell. I think it's a game time decision probably every day the rest of the year. Right. Uh, so, so the Phillies, uh, just by virtue of the pitching, uh, uh, should have the advantage? Question mark. Yeah, I mean, anytime, if you're throwing Laurie Halliday, you have an advantage. I, I, I mean, I can't imagine how bad your teammates would have to be for you to be an underdog with Roy Halliday on the mound, and the Phillies teammates aren't that bad. Um, yeah, sometimes. Uh, although, you know, I was looking, and it, it has a lot to do with. Um, his minus uh, his negative nine runs from base running, uh, but Ryan Howard actually finished with the um, the eighth best WAR on the Phillies. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think at some point we're going to run out of ways to talk about how Ryan Howard is overrated. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's the nice thing about the Robinson Cano love dust that was the first round of the playoffs is maybe now we can kind of give Ryan Howard a break and say, okay, everybody knows that you are massively overrated. Now we can let everyone know that Robinson Cano is becoming massively overrated. How does that happen? How do those narratives begin? I assume it's because each of those players plays for a team that's very good. I mean, is that is that at the root of it and just doing, um, doing things in important situations and then um, – you know, sort of creating a narrative that uh, just never gets knocked down? I don't know. I think the reality is that uh, there's still a decent amount of old-school media that acts as an echo chamber, so uh, I'm not going to point out any names, but uh, you can basically think of all the mainstream national analysts who will agree with each other uh, when something happens and say, man, isn't that guy amazing? And then they'll go to dinner together and they'll talk about how amazing that guy is. And then that guy will hit a home run and they'll all write an article about how amazing that guy is. And all of a sudden we've been inundated with articles about amazingness that really started with a conversation between a couple of people. And so uh, I think that there are influential media members who, um, you know, maybe shape more opinions than they should. And so when they get the, the opinion that this guy is really good and then he does something you know, really good, and they tell everyone about it. It certainly uh, penetrates deep into the baseball core. Yeah, which um, sounds disgusting, but we assure everyone that it's less gross than white. That's like a ge- geological term. Right? No, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Uh, now, just as it, uh, you know, with those narratives that exist about Howard and and even more recently Cano, uh, is it possible to state how good Roy Halladay is? I mean, isn't that a narrative? Isn't you could just talk, keep talking about how good Roy Halladay is? This year he had, uh, you know, what you could argue he had his his best season ever this year. Right. I think that's the crazy thing about Halladay is like what he won a Cy Young in 2003 or 2004, and then every year since then he's kept getting better. So like he's just kept improving after being one of the best pitchers in baseball, and now he's one of the best pitchers ever. Uh, I think you know we can gloat about you know about how great uh, Roy Halladay is, and probably never run out of adjectives for his greatness. I mean, he really is head and shoulders above any other pitcher in baseball. Uh, he has been for quite some time. He's durable. He, you know, there's really nothing wrong with Roy Halladay. Like, with any pitcher, even Justin Verlander or Cliff Lee, we can pick out flaws and say, you know what, if they just did this a little bit better, Roy Halladay has no flaws. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing I notice about Roy Halladay, you know, when he's pitching is, because he, he especially, well, he throws, what, four-plus pitches, essentially. He's got the cutter, two-seamer, change-up, Curveball? Is that a... Yeah, yeah, and all of them are uh, among the best in baseball at that particular pitch. Right, and even just the way he uses his fastballs is amazing. It's like he just has a spot on the outside corner, and the ball doesn't end up in that spot because it either dives outside as a cut fastball away from the right-hander or you know moves back across the plate with the two-seamer. It's it's just absurd how... Because it, I imagine it would be terrible to just have to face Roy Halladay as a batter. It must create so much anxiety. Yeah, I mean, I think Halladay at this point, and, you know, there are other pitchers in this genre, or at least have been in the past, but I think uh, Halladay has gotten to the point where there's no point trying to recognize the ball coming out of the hand. You should just guess. Like, your best approach is to look for one specific pitch, hope you get it, and swing hard. Because, realistically, if you say, oh, yeah, I'm going to be able to pick up the difference between his cutter and his two-seamer coming out of his hand, no, you're not. You're just not going to be able to. So uh, with Halliday, you just basically have to become a guess hitter, and you know if you don't guess right, go back to the dugout with your tail between your legs. Uh, we mentioned briefly uh, um, 
well, I mean, we've met, we've been talking about the playoffs. Uh, as of tonight, or uh, you know, there will be uh, after tonight, there will be 26 teams uh, that are no longer in the playoffs. Uh, one of them will be the White Sox, or has been <laughs> has been since the season ended. Uh, the White Sox they just hired Robin Ventura as their manager. Maybe somewhat surprisingly, uh, certainly uh, David Martinez, uh, the Rays bench coach, was one of the names being circulated. Um, you know, there is certainly speculation about some other players. Does this interest you? Uh, who does and doesn't become managers, and do we understand the ways that managers contribute to wins? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the Ventura hiring is interesting in that he has no experience. <laughs> and, like, uh, you know, they basically just went and picked the guy who uh, Kenny Williams knew as a player and who he liked his personality. Uh, but he had no track record. He had no resume to speak of. Uh, they're basically just taking a chance on a guy. So to me, that's interesting because I do think that, uh, by and large, we just really don't know what makes a good manager. Um, you know, we can talk about, like, I think Jim Leland did a lot of things strategically wrong in the American League Division Series. But his players love playing for him. They love the guy. He's been around forever. Uh, he's won way more games than he's lost. I think at some point you say, hey, if Jim Leland's strategy really actually mattered that much, he wouldn't have lasted this long in baseball. So clearly he's doing things that work. I think the same is true of Tony LaRusa. Does some maddeningly th- and stupid things when you look at it from a run expectancy or a win expectancy standpoint. Uh, but you know, it's, it's hard to argue with the results he gets from his players. Um, I think you know there are personality aspects of the game that we just don't understand and can't understand and can't really measure accurately. I think they're probably overstated by the mainstream media, but they do exist. And so you know, by and large, when it comes to managers, I'll just say hire you whoever you want, and we'll figure out if it's a good idea later. Yeah, I mean the thing with do we is there any precedent? And I, I assume it, I mean it would be an involved study, but off the top of your head, uh, do you remember any managers getting hired with absolutely zero managing experience? I think Larry Durker, when he was with the Astros, right, they pulled him out of the broadcast booth and made him a manager. Um, I think he had previous front office experience. Uh, I believe he'd been a GM or you know something along those lines. Um, so you know he had some management experience, but not necessarily a field coaching experience. Um, and I think there are a couple other examples that I read about a few days ago, but it's definitely not something you see very often. I mean, for the most part, teams want to see a guy who's managed to the minor leagues or was a bench coach on a winning team. I mean, there's a definitely a, a normal path to becoming a manager and just, you know, popping up one day and saying, hey, GM, remember me? I used to play for you 10 years ago. That's not normally how it works. Um, I, I mean, if no, if no other reason, the manager probably exists uh, for the purpose of um – sort of uh, pensive shots in the middle of the game. I know that was certainly happening with the Red Sox. Something bad would happen on the field for them. And then the the, the cut was always to Terry Francona, sort of uh, anxiously chewing on double bubble. Yeah, I think last night uh, the fun was, you know, they would catch Jim Leland walking around, and the question was always, like, is he speaking away from a smoke in the middle of the game? I mean, you can have a lot of fun with a camera on a manager during the armor. Lou Pinella used to, you know... Get, uh, more TV time than whoever was pitching that night. So, uh, you know, it's definitely uh, an entertainment factor for the broadcast. Right. Yeah, I guess the question is how much it's actually worth to a team, both in terms right. of money and... Uh, well, certainly Ozzie Guillen. I mean, the question, how much do you think Ozzie Guillen was worth to the White Sox? Uh, negative something. I mean, I think to me, Ozzie Guillen uh, distracted more than he was actually worth. Uh, Ozzie Guillen's not a great strategical manager. Uh, it's not like he's picking out the right players. This is the guy who pushed for Juan Pierre to be in the lineup. He, uh, he used Omar Vizquel as a DH. Uh, I think, you know, the, the bad with Ozzie Guillen, uh, you know, not being able to go along with his general manager, having public clashes, putting players in the doghouse, certainly outweighed whatever good 
uh, you got from the entertainment value of watching IBM manage. All right. All right. Uh, last thing. Uh, again, there there are going to be 26 teams that are playing. Uh, but recently, uh, for fans of all those teams, uh, the Arizona Fall League has started. Uh, it's actually kind of surprisingly to me that the, the games are available not at all in terms of video and I think maybe not even radio. Um, which I guess is a bit surprising. It, I don't know. Do, does the Arizona Fall League appeal to you at all? I mean, I think the uh, idea of the Arizona Fall League is interesting. Uh, the actuality of how I'm going to allocate my time doesn't lead me to spending that much time actually wishing that I could watch Arizona Fall League games. I mean, I, you know, I already watch a decent amount of baseball in October as it is. And, uh, you know, I have to have writing duties and management duties and uh, husbandly duties and beating cancer duties. I got, I got a lot of stuff going on. So no, at no point am I like, man, I really wish I could watch an Arizona Fall League game. Uh, but I do think that, you know, there's interesting things happening uh, and keeping an eye on it isn't the worst idea in the world. Yeah, but I mean, it's not even on TV. Does that surprise you at all, that there's not even, like, a web feed? Not really. I mean, it's kind of expensive to set up a camera or multiple cameras and have, you know, a person operating it. Uh, it's not like a revenue stream. I can't imagine uh, more than, you know, you would pay for Arizona Fall League broadcast. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't think it would be a revenue generator. And in, in general, it's, it's a lot of work. So, I mean, the whole point of the Arizona Fall League is for the players to get work against other players, especially guys who got injured during the year, signed late. Um, so the point of the league is for development, not for entertainment. And so, um, you know, I, w- I just don't think it's a marketable uh, aspect where you can actually make money on it. And if you can't make money on it, very few teams are interested in doing it. Well, I, I mean, you watch Mariner games. Yeah. I mean, that that, that is, can't uh, be for I, entertainment purposes. Well, when Felix Hernandez pitches, it's pretty good. And, you know, I think there's something to be said for, like, I, I can have some nostalgia where I don't, anyone is like a Peoria Javelinos fan who remembers their... Javelinos. Javelinos. I'm going to call them Javelinos because that's way more fun. <laughs> uh, so I, but I doubt anyone has, like, an emotional attachment to them or the, uh, what is it, the Mesa Solar Fox. I mean, I just don't think that there's, like, a rich history there that can uh, cause you to, you know, even if your team is terrible, remember the good old days. Although there is, the, I think a smart thing they do is to uh, preserve the team affiliations. So you have, you know, whatever, like five teams assigned to each of the AFL teams. So it's so you'll keep coming back to uh, to a similar team, and you know, and, and your players, you know, all your players from, for example, if you're a Mariners fan, all your players are whatever on whatever team. Are they Mesa? I don't know. I forget. No, they're they're on the Peoria Javelinos. Yeah, Javelinos. Good. Glad you've. Uh, You've turned around on that matter. Uh, okay, Dave Cameron, you got anything else for us? Any pressing uh, pressing issues? Uh, well, since I'm at Whole Foods and you brought it up, and I, I feel like uh, with Jonah Carey selling out his podcast and no longer doing the food pick of the week, that, uh, I, I have the urge to like recommend to people, uh, if, they're, if they're salsa fans, uh, I'm actually at Whole Foods to buy a jar of salsa. Uh, Frontera Grill, Rick Bayless's company, sells a fall chipotle pumpkin salsa that is uh, amazingly delicious on all kinds of things. So if you like salsa, uh, get yourself to a uppity food store. Try and you know work your way through all the incense and the the, the yuppies and buy some uh, chipotle pumpkin salsa. You'll thank me later. Yuppies like Dave Cameron. It, it sounds like. Well, I, I don't think I really fit in with them, but I like to shop at their stores. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. A lot of them them talk. You know, <laughs> to, to name to name someone is to negate them. I think you've heard that before. Uh, I have, and you know that's actually going to be hanging on a banner in my room. So. Yeah. 
Good. Uh, well, it's good that we could have this uh, informative and mildly contentious conversation, Dave Cameron. Uh, isn't that how all our conversations go? Yep, that's affirmative. Uh, that has been Dave Cameron. Dave, uh, honestly, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right, and uh, I am Carson Sestouli, and this has been another edition uh, of Fangraphs Audio. Thank you.